Hey, just for fun, let's stand up again. <laughs> I want to read the passage uh, that we're going to be rooted in for the sermon. Uh, it's in Luke 17, and this is one of those, we preach the whole Council of Scripture verses that uh, can be a tough one, but we're just going to, we're going to see what the Lord has to say to us, okay? Okay, so Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the sons of man, or the son of man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there. Look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to another part of the sky, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and they were be being given in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And it, it was the same as happened in, in the days of Lot when they were eating and they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that on that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I know uh, our middle school kids are up in the service today, and I wanted to do a little bit of free association with them. So I'm going to throw a, a picture on the screen, and you let me know what you see. So go ahead, Sam, put that up there. What do you think that represents to you, Emma? Fourth of July. Does anyone else, why, why do you say that? Anyone else want to add to that? Why, what makes you say Fourth of July? Anyone besides Emma? Fireworks? Bombs, Bombs. Bombs. Whoa. with a song even. Yeah, and what's the backdrop? The American flag, very good. So that is uh, the 4th of July, fireworks, America, our independence, 1776, we became uh, independent, uh, barbecues, all kinds of, this picture means 4th of July to most of us, right? Uh, what about the next picture, Sam? Does that mean anything to, to anybody? Probably not. <laughs> it's a ruin, right? It's a ruin. This is a, a, a site in, in Greece that represents the day and the spot where Thebes de um, defeated Sparta. 
in 362 BC. It was called the Second Battle of Matania. It was a significant historical event. Do you know when that happened? The 4th of July. Okay. If you're to Google the 4th of July, there are at least 30 significant events. That, besides, if you're born on the 4th of July, that's pretty cool too. Uh, there's over 30 important events from the abolition of slavery in New York City in 1827 to the discovery of the Boston Higgs particle in 2012. Another fantastic fact that all happened on the 4th of July. But for you and I, most often, when we think 4th of July as Americans in the 21st century, we think of that first picture, right? That's our, that's our bias, okay? Let's go to the next picture, and uh, middle school kids, help me out with this one. Who do you see? How do you know that that's Santa? Lots of toys, beard, Christmas tree presents. Someone said he's creeping into somebody's house. Yes. Yes. Okay. So this is, when we see this dude, we think Christmas, we think Santa Claus. Now, Sam, how about the next picture? Now, who's this dude? <laughs> Middle school kids. All right. So this is St. Nicholas. This is the, the one supposedly that Santa is based upon. The first picture we have is a jolly fat man in a red coat, often associated with presents in a sleigh. But that image of Santa, the guy in the red coat with the white beard and the gifts, that image comes from a distinct time and place. It comes from 1822, when Clement Clark Moore wrote the poem, The Night Before Christmas. Later, that image, that he wrote that poem for his family. How, did it, how do we know about it? Two words, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola got that image and has branded it to now that is the normal view of Santa. But St. Nicholas here on the screen right now, born in Myrna, modern-day Turkey, died in the year 343. He wouldn't have a use for a sleigh in the arid Turkish land or reindeer or a heavy fur-lined coat, nor does he sneak into your house and deliver gifts. And yet, when we think, so, so we're, we, we think of these things through our own lens, don't we? Now, when we read, or when I read that text to you, did anything come to mind? That passage about two people grinding wheat, one taken, the other left behind. Anything come to mind? How about this next picture, Sam? Right? Now, what's ironic is, or not ironic, What's interesting to me is that middle school kids, do you even know what that is? I doubt that many of our kids have even heard of the rapture, right? That's kind of a cultural phenomena that some of us grew up with. But so, so when we read that text, sometimes we think in, along this term as left behind. And, and I don't just mean bad Christian movies, but I just mean like this idea of rapture. But the doctrine of the rapture wasn't really a thing until the early 20th century. And even then, it, it wasn't popularized until the idea was added to the Schofield Study Bible in the early uh, 1917, 1925. And even though dis dispensational theology, um, theologians do not even look at our text that we're talking about tonight Modern-day dispensationalists don't even see that text as representing what they believe to be the rapture. Many Americans do. Why is that? Because it's been 
part of our popular culture. It's been in left behind. I don't mean popular culture. I mean popular Christian culture. And it's been replicated through preaching and through movies and books. My point by these three funny, silly examples is that every one of us sees the world or reads a text or watches a film or hears a song through a lens. And we can't help it. Like, we all carry our own stuff into the text. What I'm asking us to do as we enter this text tonight is that we just suspend it for a moment. Because there may be cognitive dissonance from things that we've read before or heard before. The passage I'll put out in the beginning, and you can see for yourself, is not about being left behind or raptured into another sphere of reality, at least not this passage. But it is about something important, something important enough for Jesus to teach his disciples and therefore us about Something important enough for Luke and Matthew and Mark to pass down to us in those Gospels. So let's give it a go. And before you preach on anything, you ought to pray. But before I preach on this, we're really going to pray. Okay, so. Holy Spirit, this is where you come in. This is your ministry. Actually, I thank you that you've come in earlier in the week when you, uh, when I prayed for help in in preparing this and studying this and, and now in presenting it. I know it's a two-way street, Holy Spirit. So I pray you would empower me to preach what is true and what you would have me preach. And I I pray you would empower us to receive your word. Let it penetrate deep in our hearts. If there's changes in the way we need to think differently, would would you help us with that? And for all of us, I pray that you would show us why this matters and and why it's good news and and how to live differently when we leave this place. Amen. So this whole passage that I just read begins with verses 20 and 21. The Pharisees, who were some of the religious leaders of the Jewish people, were asking Jesus when is the kingdom of God going to come? That's a significant question. It really frames everything Jesus is about to say. Whatever Jesus is or isn't saying has to do with the questions of the Pharisees. When is this kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, going to come? His answer is a response to their question. They want to know when the kingdom of God is going to appear. So maybe it would be wise for us to do a little refresher course on what the kingdom of God is, because we're going to be talking about it, okay? The idea of the kingdom of God comes from the promises of the prophets who spoke of the days when God would come and dwell in his people, dwell with his people, and rescue them from captivity. So in a very real sense, when the kingdom of God comes, there would be judgment on those who reject Jesus And a replacing of the world powers with God's reign, with God's king. How and when and what exactly it would look like was up for debate. It's really fun kind of reading uh, the different interpretations from the rabbis in the uh, last century B.C. and first century A.D. and second century A.D. Just to see what kinds of things people were experimenting with and what they were drawing from in the prophets. 
but most people agreed it would be some sort of anointed deliverer, otherwise known as a messiah, and this messiah would lead his people back into faithfulness to God and lead them into victory over their enemies. And this preparation that the Messiah would do, getting people to come back to Torah and getting them free from the foreign oppression of other governments, that would pave the way for God himself to come dwell with his people. That's what most people believe. That was the mainstream thought when Jesus was doing his ministry. Now, as you might imagine, people wanted to know when all of this would happen. How would they know? The popular belief was that something spectacular would happen, that there might be a revolution and the Messiah would would come and lead the Israelites uh, in victory over Rome. Others thought that amazing astrological signs would take place and, and people would know that way. But Jesus tells the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is not coming in signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, there it is, or hey, here it is. It's not going to be like that. Jesus warns you won't be able to observe it. But, you know, there's a but coming. But you will be able to recognize it. See, behind the English word observe is the Greek peritereseos. I'm not going to make you say that one. It's just weird. It's long. But what it means is observance of self-interpreting data. That's the term used for forensic evidence. Okay, so there's dirt in my backyard. We just moved our shed over, and uh, if if someone had come into my shed and taken my drill, and I heard that Keely did it, I could uh, I could hey Keely, let me see what shoes you're wearing. Oh, size four, five. I don't know. She's not going to tell me. Okay, and you can look at her shoe, and you can look at the the, the, the tread mark, and you can see hey those little those little shoes are leading up. So that's like forensic evidence. That maybe doesn't close the case. But you could look at a thing and you could say, that shoe matches the imprint and boom, you could make a one-to-one. Uh, that, that's what that, that Greek word behind observation means. In other words, Jesus is saying that if you are looking for writing in the sky or DNA evidence or being able to match up Keely's shoe with the perpetrator's imprint, that you're going about it the wrong way. The kingdom isn't a, a particular place opposed to other particular places. So stop wasting your time looking for the spectacular. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. But then he says something positive. He says, take heart. Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So they're looking at the stars. They're looking for these other signs and wonders. They're looking for forensic evidence. And Jesus is saying, you're looking in the wrong places. It's not going to be like that. It's in your midst. Now, I will say this, and it needs to be said because maybe some of you have Bibles in front of you that say something like, the kingdom of God is within you. That is an unfortunate translation that has caused many who are deeply influenced by other philosophical and religious traditions to assume that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is some kind of spiritual, internal state that you and I just have inside of us, and we just need to unlock it. That sounds actually quite Gnostic to me, something like the secret religion or something. But consider this, a Jewish teacher like Jesus, talking to Jewish men like those Pharisees, could not have imagined that concept of the kingdom of God being 
a spiritual reality inside of a person. Let alone would Jesus be saying to the Pharisees who continually reject him that it's okay, guys, the kingdom is in you. From the prophets to Jesus, from the apostles to the early church, the kingdom of God is believed to be a physical, geographical reality. It is nothing short of God's king reigning over God's kingdom. So what does Jesus mean? The kingdom of God is in your midst. He means that the kingdom is right in front of them. That where he is, there the kingdom is. See, the prophet spoke of certain things taking place when the kingdom of God breaks into the world. Things like the blind seeing and the deaf hearing and the poor having the gospel preached to them and lepers being cleansed. And what has Jesus been doing in his ministry? Anyone want to take a stab at that, middle schoolers? Has he been healing anybody? Particularly, what kind of people has he been healing? Lepers? Blind people? Yes, all of so we, we, I think Jesus probably healed all kinds of people, all kinds of ailments. The gospel writers tell us the stories of Jesus healing, healing particular types of ailments, the ones that the prophets talked about. And in the verses 11 through 19 of this very chapter, the story that comes right before the Pharisees asking this question, Jesus heals 10 lepers. Where is the kingdom of God? It's where Jesus is present. Now, here's the irony or the punchline or the the warning, if you will. Jesus had healed 10 lepers, but only nine came to thank him. I mean, only one came to thank him. Nine were Jewish. They just kept going. The one who came to thank Jesus was a Samaritan. One of the most despised types of people to a Jewish person. Jesus is saying that because he is in the midst of the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is in their midst. Would they see it? Would they have eyes to see him like the Samaritan? Could they come to know Jesus as the door through which all people must enter the kingdom of God? That's the question in that passage. And so it's a question to you and me too. Can we, do we see Jesus as not just another option out there, but as the door through which we must enter the kingdom of heaven? Because that's what Jesus is saying. Like, sometimes I wish I could have it both ways, but he won't let us, will he? He's the way, the truth, and the life. If we get anything out of this passage, if you have to turn your mind off at any point, just do it after this. That Jesus is the doorway to the kingdom. That other philosophies, other religions can't get us there, are incapable of getting us there. Being a good enough person or saying the right prayers won't give us the new life that Jesus alone can give us. Only putting our trust in him allows us entrance into the kingdom. And notice that trusting him, yeah, there's a lot of implications there. You don't have to do anything for that. It's a starting point. That is really good news. So take that, turn your minds off, doodle if you want, although it's gonna get better, so stick with me. So let's continue the story. Jesus was talking with the Pharisees, but like any good rabbi, his disciples are all around him, and now he's going to turn 
and he's going to address them specifically, which I'm also imagining the Pharisees are still in the background, but we don't know that. They've already come to know Jesus as someone very special. At best, they could before the rec- uh, as best they could before he was resurrected from the dead, they found that with Jesus, their lives were absolutely better. Now, they may have given up riches like Matthew or shares in the family business like Peter, James, and John, or other forms of earthly security like the other disciples, but they had never been so alive as when they were with Jesus, the one who did things only God can do, the one who spoke and taught with authority like no one else they had ever heard. When storms rose up in their lives and they feared, Jesus brought the calm. When religious leaders cornered them with these fantastic biblical arguments, Jesus always outwitted them. When demons oppressed and disease threatened and fears overwhelmed, Jesus was more than their match. It was so cool, I I imagine, to be with Jesus. Like life amplified. Like you're just thinking, what can go wrong when I'm with him? The kingdom of God was where Jesus was ministering. But here's the thing that was unexpected to everyone. The part that people didn't, couldn't, and wouldn't understand. Jesus was just getting started. The earthly ministry of Jesus is like one of those late February days where you wake up and it's not raining. And for some reason it's 62 degrees and warm and you see the cherry blossoms bursting and all of you pale skin people come out like mole people and your white skin is out because you wear t-shirts for the first time, right? It's spring. Spring is coming. It's not quite here yet. That's like, that's like Jesus' earthly ministry. But those freak February days, they don't last. You know winter is on its way out, but it hasn't had the last word yet. There's still going to be more freezing and more windstorms, more snow flurries, and more vitamin D supplements and happy light applications. Spring is coming, but it's a process. Winter's cold and death will be judged by late July, but in the meantime, there's a lot of struggle left to have happen. So the disciples are enjoying the early spring of Jesus, but he wanted to warn them that there were going to be some dark days to come. So he says, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you won't see it. The days of the Son of Man is another way of saying the days of the Messiah, the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus still had work to do, but that work would involve dying on a cross and then being resurrected from the grave and then ascending into heaven and then sending the Holy Spirit. Their days of being just with the earthly Jesus were almost done. The days would come when Jesus would be taken from them and things would get hard and they would long for the days when they were just walking with Jesus by the waterfront and he was doing cool tricks like multiplying food and making wine out of water and it was so good to be with them. And there would be many false messiahs out there. But he warned them, don't take the bait. There still are false messiahs out there. Jesus says, don't take the bait. There's political messiahs promising heaven on earth through enlightened policies. There are religious messiahs promising us escape, uh, escape pathways through prosperity doctrine from Christianity to cult leaders and gurus claiming to have the path to life. Let's watch Wild Country 
you're looking for a Netflix show. No, it's crazy. Jesus says, don't be fooled. You'll know it when the Son of Man's day, uh, when it's the Son of Man's day. It will be as obvious as lightning lighting up the sky. And when we get to the suddenness, uh, that's when we get to the suddenness of the Son of Man, the day of the Son of Man. And Jesus gives us five parallel illustrations, two historical events and three hypotheticals that help us to bring this home uh, in the disciples' present day. First is Noah and his family. They are obedient to God, and as crazy as it sounded, they're working on a massive ship in the middle of arid Palestine. The rest of the world was busy going on with normal life, but Noah was prepared, and suddenly God's judgment came upon the world, and only Noah and his family were left behind. It will be the same when the Son of Man is revealed. In the same way, Lot and his family were warned by God to leave the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. One day, everyone is going about their business. The next day, fire and brimstone are raining down on those cities, while Lot and his family escape toward the mountains. They're left behind. It will be the same when the Son of Man is revealed. And then he brings this concept home to the disciples by giving three hypothetical scenarios. On a rooftop, people sitting on the rooftop in the cool of the evening like you would after work. When the time comes, don't go back downstairs and grab your whatever, your clothes, your money, your earthly possessions. It won't matter. Don't turn back if you're out in the field and you're farming to grab your plow or your seeds. It won't matter. Run. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus says. In Jewish thought, Lot's wife was an example of a person divided. God rescued Lot's family from the evil and worldly ways of Sodom, but the angel warned them, don't look back. Now that doesn't mean, I, if you ever read that passage, you go, that's pretty harsh. God turned her into a pillar of salt for like looking back. It doesn't mean that she looked back. It means she was divided, that her heart was split, that part of her was longing for the life that she had in that wicked place. Daryl Bach writes, Jesus invokes the memory of Lot's wife, who in Judaism is seen as an illustration of an unbeliever. She's a negative illustration of the consequences of holding on to life's possessions. The call to remember her is a call to pay, to pay heed, pay attention, to be ready. Don't live with a divided heart. Be ready now. Choose Jesus now. Because on that day, people will be going and doing regular stuff. And what will decide their fate is not the stuff that they're doing, but their heart while doing it, their allegiances. Two people will be in bed, one will be taken, the other left behind. Hey, everybody sleeps. Being in bed isn't a bad thing. And if this has allusions to sexual activity, married couples should be having sex. That's not a bad thing, doing it or not doing it. So, quite a normal activity for married people. But if we get it out of place, if we make that the center of our lives rather than a gift, then our hearts are exposed as corrupted. Two people will be grinding wheat, doing the mundane work of preparing food. One will be taken, the other is left. The work wasn't the issue. The heart while doing the work is the issue. 
The day of the Son of Man will come suddenly, and Jesus warns his disciples that their allegiances must be to him, not to their thing, or not to their work, or not to their pleasure. So what does this passage mean? What does it mean? If we read it through the lens of left behind, we might think it's about the end of the world. We might think it's saying that while people are going about their business, God is going to snap his fingers like Thanos on Avengers Infinity War. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. (laughs) If you don't know what I'm talking about, it doesn't matter. Uh, That was for the kids. And Scoon, apparently. Uh, And and half... (laughs) Half the population will disappear, right? But as we saw in the introduction, the idea of rapture, of some people being taken out of the world, just doesn't jive with the biblical narrative. In the story of Noah, it's the evildoers who are washed away. Noah and his family are left behind. And in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the evil inhabitants of the cities are swept away. It is Lot and his family who are left behind. And in the same way, on the day of the Son of Man, those who are being judged will be taken away, while those who are in Christ will be left behind. You want to be left behind. So what does this passage mean? I'm coming back to it again. What does it mean? Does it talking about the end times? Perhaps. Perhaps. But it is also, clearly speaking, of a time in the disciples' generation, in their time. Jesus is saying, you will long for the days of the Son of Man, and you will see these things happen to those 12 men who are standing there. The parallel passages in uh, in, uh, Mark 13 and Matthew 24 are even more clear on the fact that this teaching is intended for the disciples and that these events would take place in their lifetime. Earlier, we heard from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, Um, In that passage, which is a vision really, Israel had been oppressed over time by four beasts representing, or three beasts representing three different nations. There would be a fourth. And it would appear that the people of God would, were defeated and crushed, just beaten down. But then there's this scene where one like a son of man uh, comes on a cloud before the ancient of days, that's God himself. Now here's the deal. The perspective of Daniel 7, it's from heaven, okay? So Daniel's having this vision and describing it to you and me, and his vantage point isn't earth looking up to heaven, it's heaven looking on to earth. One like the Son of Man comes on a cloud, not to earth, like Jesus is coming out of the sky to earth. He's coming on a cloud into heaven. The Son of Man represents uh, bef- uh, the people of God being vindicated. They had been oppressed. They felt like God had abandoned them. They felt like they were overrun. And this is like the vindication ceremony. Like the Son of Man represents all of the people of God. And in one person, he's standing before God and he receives a kingdom and he receives glory and dominion and a reign. That's what Daniel 7 is pointing towards. Now, here's what's really interesting. Even in, the, even in the early writers of, of Jewish writers who were commentating on the prophets, this, it was a mystery who this son of man was. But when Jesus started his ministry on earth, he referred to himself often as, say it louder. Come on, wake up. Son of man. Yes, that's Jesus. 
And he was rejected by the religious establishment, crucified by the beast of Rome. And in Acts chapter 1, we read, how did he go up? He ascended into a cloud. Oh, pfft, so good. And he was received into a cloud and ascended out of their sight. You see, Rome thought that they had crushed Jesus. The religious leaders thought they had rid themselves of this rival. But Jesus, the Son of Man, was vindicated before God. And he received a kingdom and a people unto himself. A new people of God made up of everyone who would place their faith in him. Everyone who would pledge their allegiance to him. A group of holy ones made up of Jews and Gentiles and you and me. That's fantastic. Those who don't place their faith in Jesus, those who go after false messiahs, the text implies, will be judged. And that's just what happened historically in 70 AD when the Israelites revolted against Rome decisively in 66, triggering a domino effect where Rome could not take it any longer. The Romans would go on to kill thousands and thousands of Jewish people and sack the temple in 70 AD. Where will this happen the disciples ask. And Jesus said, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. Now that can be taken in two very distinct ways. Both line up with each other. One is, it's, it's like a proverb. It's like where you see death happening, there you'll see the vultures gathered. It's like a sign. But interestingly, in the ancient world, people did not know. They weren't really any biologists back then. People thought that vultures were a type of eagle the same exact word. And so what do, you say, what do you have when a bunch of Roman legions come crashing down on Jerusalem and sacking that temple? People holding standards with eagles on them. So where you see this sign happening, this destruction, this judgment on the temple, on the people that have rejected Jesus, you'll see the eagles gather. The clear face value reading of the passage places these events in the lifetime of the disciples. As clear as lightning in the sky, the destruction of the temple was the judgment in their day and age for the reaction of a rejection of the Son of Man and his rise to power at the right hand of the Father. Why does that matter to you and me today? What does all this mean? Well, as often biblical prophecy and scripture has there's more than one meaning to this text. Prophecy often has a dual purpose. There is no reason this passage that clearly talks about events happening around 70 AD isn't also talking about future events when Jesus comes decisively to make all things new. The whole point of the passage is that you don't want to be taken. You don't want to be wiped out. You want to be left behind. In fact, you and I are left behind on purpose. The world will need and does need those who are in Christ to be a blessing, to be carriers of the gospel into the darkest places. So be ready. Don't waste your time trying to figure out when the end will come. Don't neglect your calling as an embodied human being by pulling out of the world into a Christian little subculture where all we do is Christian stuff with Christian people and just wait our time until we're zapped up and, and taken away. That is not what 
the biblical record tells us to do. That is not the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of Paul. Right? We're to be engaged in the world. We're left behind for a purpose. There's a little weak amen out there, but that gives me like reason to get up in the morning. If we're just waiting for to get like teleported off this rock, there's not a lot of reason to engage in the world, right? The central message of the passage, and let me just say this, you can interpret this however you like. If you're like, nope, I still want to think that it's the rapture, here's why that doesn't matter. The biggest part, the central core of this passage is simple. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. And how can we be ready? Very pastoral way. I've got three reasons, three ways, okay. The first way is to keep short accounts. Sophia, I expect you to know. Oh, I see notes. <laughs> oh, it sucks to be a pastor's kid. Keep short accounts. Be honest with Jesus. Put your trust, your faith in him and seek forgiveness when you are not faithful, which is like every day in some way, shape, or form for me. You know what? I've got some news for you, especially junior hires. Maybe you haven't heard this enough. Get this. Jesus is not surprised when we sin. He's not surprised when your pastor sins. He's not surprised when your mom and dad sin. He's not surprised when you sin. He's not shocked when we go after false messiahs, when we let our anger and our selfishness and our greed and our lust get the better of us. He's not surprised. It's exactly what he died for. He died for you and for me because he knows us so well. He does not expect you to be sinless. But I think he calls us to want to be. Does that make sense? He doesn't expect us to be sinless. But somehow when I look at Jesus and I see that life and I want that life, I want to be, right? Like I want, I want to stop stumbling on the same old crap. And if you have that inkling in you, I guarantee the Spirit's at work. You should just rejoice right now. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Second, as new creations, we're left behind for a purpose. So be about good work. The passage, not good works, good work. <laughs> the passage says two people are in bed, one was taken. Two people are grinding at the mill, one was taken. Two people on the roof relaxing, probably after a long day's work, one was taken. The issue is not the work we do, but whom we do it for. I know I just said that very clearly, but just let that soak in for a minute. Because the knife edge is tricky. The issue is not the work that you're doing. It's who you're doing it for. So if you're a student, see some students out there, maybe you're on summer break, you're about ready to re-engage in a month and a half or so. Do your work for the glory of God. Learn not just to get into a good school, to get a good job, to get a whatever, money, but learn so that you can contribute with wisdom and creativity to serve others and to, to, to magnify the glory of God. If you're in the marketplace, it doesn't matter if you're blue collar or white collar, if you're an entrepreneur or a laborer, if you're an artist or a civil servant, retired or a stay-at-home parent, do your work with integrity and thanksgiving 
Seek to do your work in a way that honors Jesus and blesses your neighbor. So keep short accounts and be about good work with Jesus. And finally, stay connected to Jesus through his worshiping community, which you're practicing right now. We need to sit under his word on a regular basis. Be participating in the community of faith. We sing his praises and commune with him at the Lord's table. We continue to be shaped by the trustworthy rhythms of the church year, the scriptures and the sacraments and the spiritual disciplines. These are the things that keep us bringing back to number one, keeping short accounts of Jesus, and number two, living out our work with integrity. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word and even for these texts that are complicated, tricky, confusing. But I thank you that you're faithful and that when we sit with the text and stand under it, submit ourselves to it, good news emerges. And I thank you, Lord, that you have saved us for something, not just to be taken somewhere else, that you have given us the gift of vocation, the gift of, of location, of being in a place, in a context, with, with, with friendships and neighbors and, and even tensions that we have to navigate, Lord. I pray you would encourage my sisters and brothers and I in our vocations, whether even if our, our lot right now is figuring out what that is. Lord, I pray you would encourage each one with the reality that you have set us aside for a reason, that we matter, that, that you want to do things in and through us, and that our very small and focused contribution matters because we're part of a much bigger whole and we're part of your kingdom. Bless you, Lord. We bless you for giving us this life, for forgiving us of our sin, for making us new creations. Help us to want to be like you, to long to be like you more and more each day. 